welcome to the Halloween edition of The Full Story. I'm Tom Couser. We begin with master storyteller Jonathan Cruck, who tells tall tales and is the author of Legends and Lore of Sleepy Hollow in the Hudson Valley. Mr. Cruck, welcome to The Full Story. Hello, I'm delighted to be here. Well, the Happy Halloween. Yes, same to you. Thank you. Well, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow was written by Washington Irving, first published 200 years ago, 1820. That's right. It's what, the anniversary. Yeah. Could, could you tell us uh, a bit about that story? Yes. It was inspired by a kind of a number of hiking expeditions Washington Irving had as a teenager in the lower Hudson Valley in Westchester. And though he may have heard it from various sources, it seems there was a a runaway slave kind of um, dwelling at a place called Carl's Mill near Sleepy Hollow, who related the tale of a Hessian trooper who, during a, a battle, lost his head. And because of the haunting spells of Sleepy Hollow, it caused the trooper to rise from his unmarked grave and forever scour the roads seeking that head so he can perhaps... Uh, cross into the afterlife. And Irving took that little gem and polished it up by adding details he gleaned from German fairy tales, from a Scottish poem by Robert Burns, and from many encounters with the Dutch Americans living in the lower Hudson Valley in the late 1700s. And then while in Scotland, he carefully crafted together and put in a pinch of tales uh, gleaned from uh, a Yankee schoolmaster and created that haunting and still iconic ghostly tale of the headless horseman chasing Ichabod Crane, who, you know, by the way, hails from Connecticut. I recently, I didn't know that. Um, first of all, I, I love the way you, you describe the tale as a pinch of this and a dash of that. It's, it, it sounds that like a indeed. recipe. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I read recently that uh, Ichabod Crane, as, as you mentioned, uh, a Connecticut connection, was based, uh, his main character in the, in, the, in the story, was based on a real man from Milford, Connecticut. Is that true? Well, there's um, a few different uh, sources, and that's what Washington Irving mastered, combining the different, uh, you know, inspirations to create the characters. There's Jesse uh, Merwin, who left Connecticut and became schoolmaster near Kinderhook, and he related a story of how he was, uh, they attempted there, the, the locals, to chase him away from a Dutch lass upon whom he was sweet, and eventually Merwin kind of overcame the, the, the uh, you know, those who were trying to thwart him and married his uh, Dutch sweetheart. Uh, there's also a fellow um, named Simon or something from uh, Sleepy Hollow who may have been the source. Plus, uh, Washington Irving met a veteran of the War of 1812 named, who, who indeed had the name of, Jess, of um, Ichabod Crane, but he was from uh, the South. So Irving brought all those different characters together. And I think there was, at the time, 
um, a number of young men from Connecticut who may not have been able to have made it as a farmer who branched out and traveled and became schoolmasters. So were the sources Washington Irving used. Full disclosure, I've got a strong connection to Milford, so we, we kind of bought that lore. <laughs> I, I did the, the book um, almost 10 years ago now, and it's possible that I now, at my old age, neglected to remember that I had done the research and found that Jesse Merwin hailed from Milford, Connecticut, because I concentrate more on the story itself, you yeah. know, the, the, the figure of, um, you know, Abraham Van Alstein, the blacksmith dressing up as a ghost and frightening away mm-hmm. um, Jesse Merwin. That, and it is an old European tradition that, you know, that it's called, a, I think, a cherry berry, and there's lots of permutations on that, like the idea of, you know, tying cans to a car, you know, or, you know, kind of harassing the honeymoon couple all kind of rise Mm -hmm. out of that. And if someone's not worthy, you kind of do the opposite. You try to drive them away with the noises and the the ghost and all of that. There's kind of a custom of dressing up as a a ghost without a head and uh, frightening off, uh, you know, again, those who are not wanted by certain folks to uh, pursue uh, certain sisters or relatives or sweethearts. So you you dress up as a headless uh, goblin and try to um, ward off the the unwanted suitor. So that's what happened to Jesse Merwin. But the origin of the headless horseman in Washington Irving's story did draw from that European custom. But it's called a legend, meaning there is truth to the story. And I did a research for my book, Legends and Lore of Sleepy Hollow in the Hudson Valley, and discovered there indeed was a headless horseman. Washington Irving says at a nameless battle during the Revolution, but the battle was the Battle of White Plains. And there is an entry from a general who was there describing a Hessian trooper who lost his head and had his horse brought down. And Washington Irving heard a version of that at Carl's Mill and then from others in the lower Hudson Valley when he, again, went through, as he said, when he was a stripling lad. And he began to um, collect those stories back in the 1790s. The journal came out a little bit later, and I feel Washington Irving doubtlessly read it because if your name is Washington and you're literate and interested in stories, you would have an eye for any tale about the American Revolution, especially, you know, ones that might pertain to, you know, your region. So that's the tale. It comes right from the Battle of White Plains. What do you think it is about this particular story that has given it legs, so to speak, for so many years? Why is it still such a popular, especially around Halloween, a popular story, a popular legend? It's the uh, the dilemma, the ambiguity of who was it? Was it the Headless Horseman who chased away and even murdered Ichabod Crane? Or was it um, Ichabod Crane's rival for Katrina Van Tassel, uh, Brom Bones, who disguised himself as the ghost in that tradition and chased off Ichabod Crane. We don't really know. Plus, the uh, the Headless Horseman is such a 
unrelentingly compelling and uh, you know horrid figure uh, that you know he he still manages to rival the likes of Dracula the werewolf and even Frankenstein's monster, even you know uh, Freddy Krueger and Jason from more recent um, you know films. So that um, that that just the presence, the, the idea of a headless horseman. Uh, continues to uh, thrill and chill us today. Jonathan Cruck, master storyteller. Can you tell us why you've dedicated your career, so much of your time to storytelling? What what drew you to that? I always have had um, an interest in stories, but the, the, the spark came when I was in college and I would tell tales to my younger brothers, um, sometimes to spook them, but more to enchant them. And then I had an experience in, in college up at Holy Cross telling stories where I found that kids were really craving stories. And this was, you know, truth to tell decades ago. And so that um, moved me. And I liked, too, the idea of how storytelling would enable me to combine acting and education, you know, in literature. So I could bring those three things together as a storyteller. And now I continue to not only tell the legend of Sleepy Hollow, but have the honor of, uh, you know, when it's not um, these COVID times of going to schools, parks, libraries, historic sites to share, um, you know, the, the, the art of storytelling. And I'm, you know, feeling as I am growing older, I'm getting, getting better at it. And, so and how... Passion. And how does a master storyteller ply his or her trade during a pandemic? Well, I'm before you uh, checked in, I was, you know, going through a bit of Facebook frustration trying to promote um, a virtual event. That's what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm doing a, a, a version of it with my friend and accompanist uh, of ten years, Jim Keys, at the old Dutch church, um, and you know to. And get the word out on Facebook, for me at least, is a bit daunting. But um, that's, you know, like all of us, we're finding ways to, to cope and change in these times. So um, that's what I'm doing. And, um, you know, it has been working on online. So I'll, I'll do this Facebook event and, event and keep uh, uh, moving, moving on. When is the event, by the way? It's tomorrow at, at 8.15 on my Jonathan the Storyteller uh, Facebook Live page. I'm, I'm having to ask um, $15 because we're in the Old Dutch Church, and both Jim and I are struggling to pay the rent these days with all of our um, you know, gigs dried up or at best converted to, um, you know, to virtual. So that's where it's going to be. Jonathan Kruk, thank you so much. Master Storyteller, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on The Full Story. You're welcome. A delight to be here. When it comes to creepy stories, Long Island is probably best known for the house at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville. But the island has many more chilling tales to offer. Carrie Ann Flanagan-Broski has literally written the book, several of them, on the ghosts of Long Island. She's also a historian and an investigator of paranormal events, and she joins us now on the phone. Ms. Broski, hello. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Tom. 
Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, sure. I appreciate it. Um, which came first, the historian or the investigator of ghost stories on Long Island? I know that's always the number one question I get. My degree is actually in photography, believe it or not. And I was a photojournalist and I had worked for uh, Newsday and some local papers. And when I started working for the local papers, I took an interest in the history that we have here uh, on Long Island. I'm from Huntington, which is very historic. So I became involved with the Huntington Historical Society. And while I worked for the paper, I started writing a column about uh, helping to preserve history. And that actually led me to write two books in 1995 and 1997. Um, They weren't ghost books. They were just historical books about places that were still in existence that I was hoping to educate the public on for preservation purposes. But when you're writing older about older homes, mansions, things like that, there's always a ghost story that seems to come uh, with it. (laughs) So people had said to me for years um, during my lectures, you know, why don't you write a book just about ghosts? And I wanted to be taken serious as a journalist and as a historian. I didn't want to be considered a ghostbuster type of thing. So I put it on the back burner for a while. But um, when I was giving a lecture for um, the Historical Society one year, uh, in walked Joe Giaquinto, who happened to be a medium and a paranormal investigator. And I decided to ask him right on the spot if he would want to help me uh, with these book projects. So in 2006, I wrote Ghosts of Long Island, Stories of the Paranormal, Then there was a sequel to that um, two years later, and my most recent ghost book is Historic Haunts of Long Island, Ghosts and Legends from the Gold Coast to Montauk Point. Um, I've written a total of eight books. I've also uh, co-authored an Italian cookbook. I'm very much into cooking. I've written one novel called The Metal, which is uh, based on a true story having to do with Padre Pio, the saint who bore the stigmata. And um, I wrote a book on historic crimes of Long Island. And I'm happy to say that next year, my ninth book, next fall, uh, Haunted Long Island Mysteries, will be out. And it's amazing to me how many people love the ghost stories. And what I do is I combine them with teaching history and what better way to learn about local history than through a ghost story. And I know you mentioned the Amityville Horror, which is in my original Ghost of Long Island book. But what I really try to do... Um, with these books is to show that Long Island is more than the Amityville Horror. It has a rich history, especially with the American Revolutionary War and our Native American past. And it's also very spiritual. As the books have evolved, they've become very, very spiritual. And Joe and I have had these connections with uh, the other side. So it's been fascinating for the readers to take them on this journey. I wanted to ask you about some of these legends that are much older than Amityville Horror. Uh, and began with with the Native Americans, as you pointed out, who settled the island originally. Uh, for example, there's the story of the Lady of Lake Ronkonkoma. Yes, yes. That is more of a legend and myth story in my earlier book. But um, I have to say there is some truth to that. Uh, it's very odd because there was a whole story of uh, there were Indians in the area, and um, there was an Indian maiden, and... Um, her she wanted to marry i believe it was a white settler and they had killed him and ever since then it is said how the legend goes is that she stays at the bottom of the lake and she looks for um virgin males and she drowns them and of course this is a legend but it is very interesting that even in the last couple of years there have been drownings of Mm. white males um so but again that's more of a um 
a legend type story, but it's what we've been known on Long Island to be one of the haunted places, I guess you can say. And what about the uh, the stories of you mentioned the revolutionary era, uh, ghosts mm-hmm. from that time that supposedly lurk around a lighthouse that sits uh, on a lonely little island in the middle of Long Island Sound called the Execution Rocks. Yes. That's actually one of my favorite stories. Um, it took a lot for to get myself and Joe into that. There was a lot of red tape uh, because it is run by the Coast Guard mm-hmm. off of Kings Point. And um, unbelievable story there. It was one of my favorites. Joe and I had gone out on a 26-foot uh, Homeland Security response boat with three Coast Guardsmen uh, to this island of rocks where there's this lighthouse, uh, very much in disrepair, it smelled horrible from dead birds and clam rot and whatnot. But um, these rocks were always there before the lighthouse. And uh, during the 1700s, when ships would come through, they didn't have the navigation systems that we have today. And they would often crash into the rocks at night. They wouldn't see them and people would drown. So that's where it started getting the name. But then when the British came, they discovered this island of rocks. And they decided to come back to the mainland where they um, take, took all of these, what they called American rebels, and they would um, bring them on their ship to this island of rocks. And they would ch- uh, chain them to the rocks at low tide. So when the tide rose, uh, they drowned beneath the icy waters. Um, other ones were eaten by sharks that happened upon a free meal. And as if that wasn't bad enough, um, they would go back and round up more of the American rebels, and they would chain them next to the skeletal remains of their former comrades as a way to torture them mentally before they met their own watery demise. And it has been said uh, for years and years that the spirits of these souls that were tortured there scream out and and can be heard uh, yelling and, and everything. And um, what's interesting is that we have many lighthouses on Long Island. And like anything else, if you had rented a house or apartment or something, there's always a contract that says, okay, well, you, you know, if you were leasing with something, um, that, all right, you're here for two years, it's a three-year lease, whatever. So and the lighthouses will run the same way when we used to have lighthouse keepers. Execution Rocks Lighthouse was the only contract that if a lighthouse keeper signed it, it said that if the keeper wants to leave at any time, he was allowed to. And it was because of these sounds and the screams that went on there. Now, when Joe and I went there, uh, we toured the whole place. We took lots of photographs. We used recorders to listen for EVPs, which are electronic voice phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And while we were there, we weren't even doing any kind of a session. We were. He, Joe had his recorder on. And we had actually captured the sound of someone screaming out. There were two different sounds. One was like a moaning sound. One was a wailing sound. And, um, of course, the Coast Guard wrote it off, you know, it was a bird. But you could hear, totally hear the birds in the background. This was not a bird sound. And uh, we were very fortunate to have heard that that day. We heard it, you know, clear as day, this wailing sound from Execution Rocks. Now, that brings up uh, another point. You're also a paranormal investigator. Um, Mm -hmm. How would you define paranormal activity? I suppose that example you just gave me is is one one picture. 
Right, right, exactly. Well, what I do when I do in-person speaking engagements, I try to clarify um, what this is all about because people will come up to me and say uh, things like, oh, I just watch paranormal activity. Is that what you do? And and I laugh and I say, no, that's not what I do. I don't see blood dripping down walls and things flying around rooms. Um, I'm not surrounded by poltergeists. Um, That's all things of Hollywood and television. What we do is more hands-on communication. We stay on the positive side of this work. We don't do anything that's demonic in nature. Um, You know, I was born and raised a Catholic. I'm firm in my faith, so um, I feel fine with what I'm doing. So basically what we're looking for when we do investigations, we use very minimal equipment. Again, it's not like you see on TV where we're screaming for the you know, spirits to come out and perform for us. We treat them like what they are, which are people. So when I lecture, I talk about the difference between ghosts and spirits. Ghosts are more place-centered. Usually they're a traditional type of ghosts that, for whatever reason, they want to stay here and not cross to the other side. And then there's spirits who are our own family members and things like that that are in the other world. For me, it's heaven, I believe, whatever people's beliefs are but that they come and stay with us on our own journey and can go back and forth. So basically with the investigations, we're using our cameras, looking for orbs, which are thought to be uh, spirits of the deceased, apparitions, which are, um, I've gotten a couple, but they're not as common as TV would make it out to be. We use our recorders. Um, I use them for the interview process to get everything accurate with the person I'm interviewing about the location. But that's when we also pick up EVPs. Those are called white noise EVPs. And then we're using something in the last two ghost books uh, called a ghost box, which is basically a transistor radio where the lines have been um, cut so it continuously scans. And we're able to connect real time. The spirits manipulate the energy. They take out words. They make sentences. We have back and forth. People are interested, they could listen to this on my website, uh, CarrieAnnFlanaganBroski.com. If you don't know how to spell all that, it's GhostsOfLyland.com. And there is a link to Joe's website where people could actually hear EVPs um, and Ghostbox recordings. So that's basically everything I've learned, I learned um, from working with Joe all of these years. And because he's a medium, he's also his own uh, ghost hunting tool. So with the exception of those items, oh, and we use a ghost meter, too, which is an electromagnetic field indicator, which picks up energy uh, in a room. And basically, that's it. That's all that we use. You know, whether we're talking about um, paranormal uh, experiences or investigations or uh, the, the legends, the old stories uh, of Long Island, it, it seems that we all enjoy listening to, to these things. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? Why, why are they so popular to to pass along and, and to, uh, uh, you know, to relate? They, they really, really are. I mean, I was a big Nancy Drew fan growing up, so this is like <laughs> living my dream as Nancy Drew. I go into cool places, mansions, and tunnels, all kinds of stuff. But people are fascinated by things that they don't understand. And again, people are often frightened when they hear oh a ghost or something, but it's really, I wouldn't say that we had anything that was frightening. Um, you know, there are some things that were maybe a little creepy here and there, but it's, it's a natural part. It's the next, it's the next life. And we're finding out that we can communicate. So I think people like that idea. They like the fascination with that, um, to, to learn something about what they don't know about. 
And when I tell people to be open to things, I said, it's okay, because what Joe and I try to do, we don't try to prove or disprove anything. Um, We just want to put the information out and have people be open to it. And when I lecture, I give an example of, um, you know, if if today it's it's the year 2020, which we're all can't wait for it to be over, (laughs) but let's go back to the 1800s now. So if I was doing a presentation in front of all of you in the 1800s and I wheeled in a flat screen TV, what would everyone say? What is this? You know, how could this be? Um, what is this made out of? They've never seen anything that looks like this. And we'll pretend we have electricity. I plug it in and I say, well, this man is talking to you live right now from London, England. What would you say in 1800? That's impossible. It's a trick. You're causing this to happen. That's impossible. Because people back then could not possibly conceive of a television set in 1800. The same thing if you bring us back to uh, 1950s. You're going on a family trip. Your husband's in the car. The kids are in the back, the wife's in the passenger, and he says, well, make sure you have the map so you can tell us where to go. Well, 1950, she throws it out the window, and he says, what are you doing? And she says, I'm going to press a button up here, and there's going to be another woman that's going to tell you how to drive. <laughs> now, would anyone's mind be able to comprehend a GPS in 1950? Absolutely not. So I think people are being more open now to things, and they're fascinated by it because they don't understand it. And people want connection with their loved ones on the other side. And, and the books are really a lot about that as well. Carrie Ann, thanks so much for your time today and uh, your explanation of some, some stories that we've heard. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time, Tom. Sure, thank you. Carrie Ann Flanagan Broski is an author, a Long Island historian, and an investigator of paranormal events. In the woods, just off a small dead-end street in Monroe, Connecticut, is the Warren Occult Museum. It's the former home of the famous paranormal researchers, Lorraine and Edward Warren. At the moment, it's closed due to some zoning issues, but the site is known for exhibits like the Annabelle doll and other items believed to be cursed. Tony Sparup is the current curator of the museum, and he's the co-director of the New England Society of Psychic Research. He is also the son-in-law of the Warrens, and Tony Sparrow joins us now on the phone to talk about things paranormal. Mr. Sparrow, hello, and thanks for uh, taking time today. Hi, Tom. Uh, My pleasure. My pleasure. I'd like to start with a a, sort of a definition, if we could. What is meant by the term paranormal? Well, Tom, uh, anything that has to do outside of our normal senses, outside of our normal belief systems, so, in other words, um, anything that has to do with spirituality that comes into play where you see things that you normally wouldn't see, like a, a ghost, for instance, mm-hmm. a discarnate entity, um, things that could happen through evil incantations where people start to dabble in things like black witchcraft, Satanism, trying to draw the netherworld to, the, to our world. And, you know, uh, everything in the universe... Actually, it's a mystery, except you have to have, of course, faith, faith in a, a creator. And there's are, there are people who have faith in something that's opposite of our creator, something that's more evil or more sinister. You know, we call it the devil or Satan. And so there's Satanism, there's black witchcraft, there's psychic ability. It could be thrown into the paranormal where someone has a, a premonition about something. 
uh, someone has precognition or could sense things that are about to happen, that's also in the paranormal realm. Anything to do that outside of our normal thinking process and our normal interactions in our daily life, you could call that paranormal. Uh, UFOs, you could call that paranormal also. Is paranormal associated with both good and evil or, or, or just things evil? Both. <laughs> both, Tom, because, you know, remember this, uh, when you say something is supernatural, if someone says that's a supernatural event, that does not necessarily mean that it's anything evil or bad. Um, God is a supernatural being. Uh, when someone, for instance, has a, a vision of a loved one who recently passed away that visits them, say, perhaps at night while they're sleeping, We've heard stories of people whose sons or daughters were killed in the war. Moments after that son or daughter had died overseas, thousands of miles away, uh, the parent or the loved one sees a vision of that young soldier or, or a Marine or whoever it may be, appears to them, and then suddenly disappears. That is something beautiful. That's something positive. It's paranormal because... Something like that would rarely you'd think would happen, but it's something that God will allow, a visitation. And what we refer to something like that, Tom, is we call that a visitation apparition, a gift from God. Letting the loved one know that that deceased person really actually lives on uh, after death of the physical body. So, so yes, there are positive paranormal things that happen, as well as, of course, the other side, the negative would the average person, do you think, easily identify something as being paranormal, uh, uh, an event being paranormal? Yeah, because uh, it would be something outside your normal realm of senses. In other words, uh, your TV goes on and off, and the channels change on their own, and you don't have a remote control uh, on your TV, and it just starts to change. Or uh, it'll go on or off at a certain time, uh, or a person may wake up every night at 3.15, you know, 3 o'clock, we refer to that as the a, as a devil's hour. Uh, lights flickering on and off, and there's no electrical cause. Uh, a shadow out of the corner of your eye that you never saw before. Uh, something calling out your name. So you would know if you're in a house all alone and you hear someone yell your name a couple times and there's no one in the house but you and you know you're awake, that's paranormal. That's something that's not natural. Anything that's unnatural that way, Tom, uh, you know, you could consider it to be paranormal. And that's where you would go into investigating it, uh, maybe approaching it with a scientific uh, bent. Uh, you know, the first thing you, I would do is check all the radios in the house. Is my radio on? Is my TV on? Is someone calling a name that's similar to mine? You try to find a reason. But when you go down that line and you can't find the reason why these things happen, then you call it paranormal. Why is it that some people say they experience paranormal activity and, and others say they don't or they've never had the experience? Well, um, there are people who go through their entire life and never have a paranormal event. Uh, that's, that's normal. That happens like, you know, maybe my grandmother never had a paranormal event. Uh, but also remember this, too, that they're not looking for paranormal events. Uh, for instance, how many people out there who are not police officers have ever been to a, a murder scene, have ever burnt, been to a burglary scene? It's when you look for things is when you find them a lot of times. So a lot of times people who have something paranormal happen to them have dabbled 
in some way, manner, or fashion. Perhaps they went to a psychic reader and wanted to have their their uh, life story read to them by someone who supposedly can can talk to spirits. Or they used perhaps a Ouija board. Or they said to themselves, I'm going to go to a graveyard today, and I'm going to snap a picture, and maybe I'll get a ghost. I'll go at nighttime with my friends. They are, uh, if they don't protect themselves, they are entering that realm where they're inviting things to come to them. When you do that, uh, like attracts like in the spirit realm. So when you do things like that, you're drawing things to you. It might be unwittingly. You know, you may not think seriously of it, say, I want to go to a graveyard tonight and snap uh, 50 photos and maybe I'll get some kind of a, a spirit phenomena. You're not thinking it through of what you're doing. You're asking to see things from the other world. You're asking to see things. So when you do that, you're opening yourself up. So uh, most people, most people will never experience a paranormal event because they're not looking for it. Uh, but the ones who do experience it, a lot of times have opened the door in some fashion. What causes uh, a place or, or a thing, an item, to be identified as, as being linked with paranormal or strange events? For instance, the, the Annabelle doll, right. uh, the, the house on Long Island, the house in Amityville, Amityville Horror. Right. Uh, what, what, what causes that connection? Well, it's said that uh, Ronald DeFeo in the Amityville house, who lived there prior to George and Kathy Lutz, you know, he was a Satanist. He practiced Satanism. He had satanic ritual objects stored in a room, a little room that called he called the Red Room. It was painted red, just a little cubby hole. Uh, and also, it was said that there was an Indian burial ground. They, they they like to say that a lot, but I believe that was true for Amityville, mm. uh, where there were spirits maybe disrupted, or something happened in that house tragically that created the ghost syndrome. Not all places, uh, Tom, that are haunted are haunted by evil spirits. They're not necessarily demons or devils. Uh, they could be human spirits that have passed on from this realm but want to stay where they're comfortable. In other words, for instance, if I, if I was someone who worked all my life very hard and I obtained this beautiful big house, I have fine artwork and antiques in the house, sports cars in the garage, but I was not like a godlike person. I didn't go to church a lot, hardly ever thought about God or praying or the spirit life. Uh, I pass on. I die in the house of a heart attack. Uh, what I might want to do is stay near my comfort zone, stay near my belongings that I worked so hard for all my life. So uh, I'm not thinking of going towards any light, going towards any nirvana, going towards heaven. I'm thinking of staying right here. Now, God uh, allowed us all free will. We have free will to make all the decisions we want. So when you pass on from this realm, a lot of times people do not want to leave their comfort zone. They want to stay where they were. And so their spirit will remain in that location for a time. It doesn't stay there forever. You know, at some point, God will determine that it's time for them to pass on. They, they must go. Uh, but for, it could be for many, many years, decades, that they stay in a location and uh, I'm not going to say they haunt the people, but they haunt the people because because it's their house and a new family moves in and they're not comfortable with the new family. So they may want to do what they can to cause a little bit of problems. And human spirits only have a limited amount of power. So they may be able to just maybe like, uh, you know, 
maybe turn on a light or maybe maybe have something uh, happen in the house that's not normal, like a light going on and off, uh, to scare the family. Or they could even see a specter of that person maybe out of the corner of their eye. So that's a human haunting. And it's much, much different than an evil or demonic type of a haunting. What was your first experience with the paranormal? I'm guessing here that as a member of the Warren family, you might have been looking for the paranormal. Well, here's the thing, Tom. I was a police officer back in the uh, uh, early to late 70s, uh, and I was in my cruiser. I'll make this story quick. I was in my police cruiser writing a report. I happened to look up, and a woman drove by in a in a brown car, and she waved and smiled at me, and she was just a beautiful woman. And I was young, in my 20s. I said, I'm going to follow her. I mean, I know it's not the right thing to do, but I'm going to follow her and see where she's going, because she waved and smiled at me like she knew me. So I followed her into a strip mall, and she got out of the car really quickly and went into a dress store. And I said, well, uh, I lost her. I'll never see her again. She came to the window. She sees me. I wave at her. She waves, but she gave me kind of a funny look, and she walked away. And I said, okay, I'm in trouble now. She's going to call the chief of police and say I'm stalking her. I'm going to get fired. Five minutes later, another police officer calls me on the radio says, meet me behind this building. So I meet him. He says, did a lady just wave at you in a car, a brown car going by you? I said, how did you know? He said, well, she knows me. Her name is Judy. She knows me. I'm her friend. He said, uh, but I'm not going out with or anything. He said, you want to meet her? I said, of course I want to meet her. I said, that this is great. I want to meet her. So he introduced me to Judy. Lo and behold, it's Judy and Lorraine Warren's daughter. And so I started to date her. Didn't know her parents. And one night she says, hey, do you want to go to uh, see my parents' lecture at the University of Connecticut tonight? And I said, what are they, college professors or what? She said, oh, no, no, they're lecturing at Jorgensen Auditorium. They're uh, ghost hunters, Ed and Lorraine Warren. And it, it, like, blew my mind because I heard the name prior to that. Didn't know a lot about them, but I said, of course I want to go. And I went to the a lecture, met Ed, met Ed, met Lorraine, and uh, watched the presentation and was so intrigued by it that I, I was blown away. And then, about a week later, she said, you want to go to my parents' house for dinner on Sunday? And that's when I really got to meet Ed and Lorraine more closely and loved everything Ed and Lorraine were telling me about the paranormal because they were so sincere about it. You know, it wasn't a joke to them. It was, it was their life's work. And when I, I look at Ed and I say, Ed, come on, you really believe in ghosts? He'd laugh. He goes, kid, I lived in a haunted house when I was five years old to, I mean, eight years old to 12 years old. I, I know what ghosts are. He says, that's how I started this, to, to try to seek out other people and see if they had the kind of experiences I had when I was a kid. So that's, that's, that was my introduction to, to ghosts and to uh, the paranormal realm. Uh, how about uh, yourself? Have, have, you, have you had a, a paranormal experience? Oh, yeah. I've, <laughs> I've had many, but uh, the scariest one was when I was in England with, with Ed and Lorraine and back in 1981. That was my first time ever experiencing anything. We went to a location, Tom, that is really spooky, actually, called Whitby Abbey, or Whitby, England. And we went on a, my wife, Judy, Lorraine, Ed, and myself, four people, we went over to England just on a vacation, and Ed said, I want to check out some haunted locations while I'm here. He said, it's going to be a lot of fun. And I was never anywhere in England or anywhere before. We go to this place. Ed wakes us up from the bed and breakfast place at about 2.30 in the morning. He says, come on, get up. We're going to Whitby. I go, what are you talking about? We're in a place called Robin Hood's Bay. He says, we're going to Whitby Abbey. 
it's a haunted location. It's a haunted uh, abbey from the 14th century. So we went, and we packed up our stuff and went. I wasn't too happy about it because I was sleeping. <laughs> and we, we went there, and he said, why don't you set up your camera on a tripod over there? We're going to try to take some photos, recording, see what we can grab. And it was dark, windy. Uh, wind was whipping off the North Sea. And you want to talk about a spooky feeling. And then in the, the moonlight, you can see the ruins of the abbey. And Ed explained to me, he says, you know, this is the place in the Bram Stoker's Dracula where the coffin landed at Whitby. I said, no kidding, Ed. He says, I'm telling you, this place is really, really something. So I'm setting up my tripod. Ed's off somewhere putting a cassette together. You know, all we used was cassettes in the 80s for recordings. And suddenly... I feel something behind me as I'm putting it on a tripod, the 35-millimeter camera. I turn around, and there's this black, all I could describe it as is this black pulsating whirlwind of mass, like a black mass within six feet of me. And I immediately was devoid of any strength. It just drained all the energy right out from under me. And I knew it wasn't good. I could just sense, you could just sense the evil there. And I fell to my knees. I couldn't hardly talk at all or move, but I was able to yell out a couple times, help, help. And remember, I was just off the police department. I, I left the police department in 1980, and 81 is when this happened. So I thought I was a tough guy, you know, but I wasn't because I was drained of all energy. Then in the corner, I could just hear, like, footsteps fast coming. And I was able to just look up a little bit, and I could see Ed running towards me. And he had holy water in his hands, and he's shouting. And I really didn't remember at the time what he was shouting, but he told me later what he was shouting. And he was shouting, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave and go back to where you came from. He saw it, too. He saw this mass, and he was flicking holy water as he ran. Suddenly the thing just pop, boom, gone. And I was on my knees, and Ed had to grab me and physically lift me up. And he said, look, he said, that was your, that was your, he goes, I saw it too. Because I said, what the heck was that, Ed? He goes, I saw it too. He goes, that was your first encounter with something evil. He said, that wasn't good. And I knew it wasn't good just the way I felt. And he said, look, we're going to pack it up. Just go to the car. I'll sit down and relax. He goes, we're not going to stay. And that was my first encounter with something demonic. That was demonic. It wasn't. It wasn't good because when something like that drains all your energy and you could just sense this feeling of dread around you, uh, you know it's not a good entity. So that was my first encounter, but I've had many where, where I've been touched. Uh, I was lying in bed at, at a house one night and uh, two hands, I was face down in the pillow, and two hands grabbed the back of my head, invisible hands, and tried to push me into the pillow so I couldn't breathe. And... I did what Ed had told me to do. I just kept saying, in the name of God, in the name of God, please leave. In the name of God, leave. Go back to where you came from. And the thing lifted off after several minutes. It was, it was terrible. So that kind of stuff happens to people who look for it. Like we were in a haunted house trying to help a family out. And, you know, I stayed overnight in that house. And lo and behold, that happened to me. So pretty scary stuff, you know. As you study further paranormal experiences, is there is there something new to be discovered? Um, are they, 
pretty much the same kinds of experiences in terms of of you know what's happening, or is there uh, is there is there something new to find as you as you look at these these happenings? Oh yeah, there, there's actually that's a good point. There's always more. Let's put it this way, Tom. There's more to learn. Uh, not that this not that the uh, phenomena is going to be a lot different than it was previously. There's always going to be calling out of names, being touched, shadows out of the corner of your eye, uh, cold spots in the house, uh, intense fear that overcomes you, uh, nightmares, thoughts that aren't your own, things like that that happen on a fairly common basis to people. You know, we can tell when somebody's making up a story because it doesn't fit the narrative of what we're used to and what we know to be a common occurrence in the house. Uh, so, um, but there are things that happen to people from time to time that you know we haven't heard before. But most of the time, though, uh, we have like a, a playbook where we know that a normal uh, a haunting of a human spirit is one way, a haunting of a demonic spirit is another way. And the ones we focus on more are, of course, the demonic ones because those are the ones that can injure people. So when people have thoughts that aren't their own. In other words, they never thought about you know, hurting someone. Now all of a sudden they're having these thoughts quite regularly where they want to hurt someone. They're having nightmares that they never had before. Or they're seeing things out of the corner of their eye. Or they're being pushed or shoved or scratched or touched. Things that a human spirit could not do. God would not allow a human spirit to perform that kind of stuff on another human being. Or possession of a person by a demonic entity, where the person now is being overtaken overtaken by a spirit who has them act in such a strange manner, you know, perhaps uh, speaking in tongues, uh, superhuman strength, where it might take six or eight people to hold down a 90-pound woman, uh, and, you know, foul odors emanating from around that person, uh, an aversion towards religious objects or artifacts, uh, a once-praying faithful person who went to church regularly now is averse to going to church doesn't want to will not hold a crucifix will not pray so those are all signs those are all commonalities that happen uh, when we deal with with that kind of a phenomena mr sparrow thank you so much for your time today uh, you've given us i think something to think about on this halloween weekend we appreciate oh, yeah. your appreciate your your time and uh, sharing your stories Okay, Tom. Well, it was it was a pleasure. I uh, I love listening to you and uh, and the, the station in general. It's a great great channel. Tony Spera is the curator of the Warren Occult Museum in Monroe, Connecticut, and also the co-director of the New England Society of Psychic Research. The town of East Tatum, Connecticut, is home to a small mountain that's infamous for mysterious rumblings. Those sounds have inspired centuries of spooky tales about witches, ghosts, demons and a mysterious wizard. WSHU's Davis Donovan dedicated his Halloween Off the Path podcast to the moodest noises. And he joins us now via Skype to tell us more about that. Davis, hello. Hey, Tom. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? Pretty good. Well, how did you hear about the, the legends of this, this mountain? Well, <clears throat> I like to dig around in my spare time into old books of New England folklore and history, 
a lot of the time that means just spending a lot of time in libraries and bookstores. But fortunately, a lot of these are now digitized and you can read them online, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it was in one of these books, but it was just a brief mention, maybe a paragraph. I was looking for a perfect Halloween story and I just loved the name Moodus Noises. Like it sounded so <laughs> evocative, you know, Moodus. And it turns out that the full name of the area, Makamudus, literally means place of bad noises in Algonquin. And the mountain itself, we're talking about Connecticut, so I don't think of <laughs> mountains in Connecticut, but what's the name of the mountain? What does it look like? Right. It's called Mount Tom. I couldn't figure out if it was like actually named after a guy, you know, named Tom or what, but you're right. It's barely a mountain. It's about 300 feet. It's really more of a hill. But when you get on it, it does not feel like that because it is surprisingly steep for a little mountain. I mean, I'm a, I'm a regular hiker and I was out of breath from just the short jaunt up to the top. But the area is utterly beautiful. It's East Haddam, kind of close to where the Salmon River feeds into the Connecticut River. It's really one of the most charming parts of the state. If you know, like, Gillette Castle, which we've also done on Off the Path. It's like just a couple of miles away. There are these long rock ridges and caves that are dotted all throughout the area, and the rivers are just sparkling blue. And now in the podcast, you point out that the native Algonquin people did hear the noises, and so did the early European settlers. Right. Actually, several uh, native tribes used the area and camped on it. And aside from the name, Makamudis, we actually don't know much about what they thought of the noises. The stories that we know, and even the ones with indigenous people in them, came from the early European settlers. Well, everyone seems to agree there were sounds, or there are sounds coming right. from Mount Tom. What do they sound like? i got to be honest, I've never actually heard them live. Very, very few people have heard them. But I, I think folklorist Steve Jencarella, who I talked to for the story, does a, a pretty good job of describing them. And here's what he has to say. They are eerie, uh, acoustic rumblings that don't quite make sense. The noises have come and gone over the years. They rarely happen anymore. But in the 1700s, you could hear them almost every day. They're what gave the area its original Algonquin name. Macamudis. Many people translate it as merely the place of noises, but it's very clear that Macamudis, Machitmudis, means the place of bad noises. Indigenous people hunted and camped on the mountain. Steve says some Europeans used stories of the noises to demonize them with racist stereotypes. In 1727, the minister of this area writes a letter in which he describes the worship here by indigenous people, and he describes it as quote-unquote prodigious trade of worship with the devil. Steve says stories of devil worship were used to justify the mistreatment and genocide of indigenous people. And it's literally used to say we deserve to take their land because our God prepared this land for us, our God wants us to get rid of the diabolical beings who are here in this territory. And then in the late 1700s, a new story about the noises emerged that moved the focus away from Native Americans at a time when the rumblings had subsided. And in that story, the, the tale revolves around a mysterious figure, sometimes an alchemist, sometimes a wizard, sometimes a man of science. His name is Dr. Steele. He's somewhere in Europe, usually in England, and hears of this mysterious rumbling and so comes to investigate. He sets up a creepy shack on the mountain and starts to dig around in the mud on the banks of the river. And then lo and behold, hits the thing that he had suspected was the reason for the moodest noises all along, a carbuncle. 
that is a glowing, growing stone that he removes and excavates from the earth. Legendary carbuncles are found referenced throughout European folklore, especially in the British Isles. And he knows that these magical stones, these carbuncles, are in the earth causing the earth pain. So the reason for the Moodist noises is the earth is groaning in birthing labor, if you will. It's groaning because it's pregnant with the pressure of these carbuncles inside. Dr. Steele warns the townsfolk these carbuncles will be back someday and the noises will begin again. Then he disappears. Steve thinks this is a version of a similar story about carbuncles that originated in Ireland and twisted its way to Connecticut. And then a century later, in 1887, the story of Dr. Steele turns up in the pages of the New York Sun, a popular but outlandish tabloid. In this version, Dr. Steele discovers that Mount Tom is hollow. He finds the entryway atop Mount Tom into a subterranean cavern. He crawls through the darkness, then sees light. Of course, it's the carbuncle. He plucks the carbuncle from the belly of the hill, turns around, and his hands are seized by bony, monstrous fingers. A, a coven of witches who live in the area have taken Steele captive. The New York Sun recounts how the witches put Dr. Steele on trial. The king of the witches himself lays down the verdict, but he shows mercy, and Steele walks free. The beauty of this tale is we have the actual handing over of the second cycle of stories, the Steel Legend. So from that point on, we begin to see tales only about the witches, never about Steel again. And even if you ask many people today in this area what causes the Moodus noises, they won't know the Steel Legend, they'll know the legends of the witches. The Moodus noises have inspired stories by well-known authors like John Greenleaf Whittier and H.P. Lovecraft. Steve says the truth, though, is a lot more mundane. We've been listening to a, a bit of uh, Davis's latest Off the Path podcast about uh, Moodus noises. So, Davis, what is then causing these noises? They're little tiny earthquakes. So I called up a geologist named John Ebel at Boston University, and he says he thinks they're probably aftershocks from an earthquake in the 1700s, literally 300 years now of really? aftershocks. And uh, you used to be able to hear them like every day. I mean, so they say in the 1700s, they were almost a daily occurrence, but they've sort of gotten uh, much rarer. They've only been heard twice in the past decade. But remember I said this mountain is short, but it's steep. Mm -hmm. What's happening is there's a cave at the base of this mountain. And when the earthquakes go off, it's a gigantic sound reflection machine. Basically, the noise bounces off the walls of the cave and just hits the side of the mountain and amplifies it, and it rings out through the air for miles all around. Are there any recordings of the sounds, of the noises? There actually is one recording. So back in the 1990s, this local woman named Kathy Wilson she was hearing these noises, and she didn't know the folklore behind them, but she stayed up all night with a tape recorder. It's three hours long. Uh, I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not road trip music. But if you listen to this recording, you'll hear about a half a dozen or so of these that are audible on the tape. It's a little hard to hear them, but they're distinctly there. 
If you'd like to give them a listen, you don't have to listen to all three hours. All you need to do is find Davis's Off the Path podcasts about the moodest noises. It's at our website, WSHU.org. Davis, thanks for explaining the moodest noises for us today. Thank you. WSHU's Davis Donovan, reporter and also the creator and host of the podcast, Off the Path, from New York to Boston. So why are we drawn to these scary, tantalizing tales? Well, joining us now via Skype is Stephen Jengarella. He's a professor of folklore studies at the University of Massachusetts, the author of Spooky Trails and Tall Tales, Connecticut, and the resident folklorist at the Connecticut River Museum. And he also contributed insights to Davis's podcast that we talked about earlier. Mr. Jengarella, good day, and thanks for joining us. Oh, hello, Tom. It is an honor to join you. You know, I think maybe we should start off with a bit of a, of a definition. I think everyone's heard the word folklore, but maybe not so clear exactly what that means. What is folklore? Folklore is uh, our traditions that are passed on from generation to generation. The one way to think about it, right, is that there's official things like literature and other uh, ways of documenting the world, but folklore is often the stories or the material culture, the recipes, anything that people have and do and, and pass on from generation to generation, often with you know, important meaning attached to that and a sense of collective identity. And in the case of folk narratives, which things like the spooky legends that we want to investigate, they're mm -hmm. also stories that are frequently passed on in the oral tradition now in the Internet and ways for people to connect to the past and influence the present and the future. So folklore could indeed be stories of the scary type, like, let's say, Moodist Noises, which we've been talking about here today. Moodist Noises is indeed folklore? Absolutely, and it's probably one of the most rich forms of folklore still active today in New England. And hundreds of years of stories, the Moodist Noises, are actual things. It's really a, a low-grade earthquake, but these eerie noises produce a gap in our understanding of the world. And, and what do we do in those gaps but fill them with stories? And once those stories <laughs> please other people, we keep telling them, which is the joy of folklore. And really, the basis of folklore is that idea of, hey, let me tell you about something that I know uh, and pass it along. So then these stories really begin with at least a seed of truth or, or an actual event. Uh, for example, uh, one, of the, one of the tales is about Micah Rood and the Bloody Apples, which yeah. uh, is connected with uh, a town in eastern Connecticut, if I understand. That's right. Uh, you know, I, I often will say you don't need a body in folklore. That is, I wouldn't ever say that every folktale has or every legend has a, a, a seed of truth as its basis. Sometimes people just love to tell good stories and run with them from there. In this brilliant story of Micah Rood, for example, we know that there were these apples in the 1800s. When Connecticut, you know, today we have so few apples to choose from, but in the 1800s, there were, you know, hundreds of varieties of apples. And a very popular apple in Connecticut had a discoloration in the flesh. Stories arose about it. May I share one of those stories? Sure, indeed. <laughs> Some people say that it happened in the late 1600s. There was a farmer in the northwest part of the town of Norwich, which would now be the town of Franklin, 
by the name of Micah Rood. And uh, Micah Rood wasn't the most industrious of fellows, wasn't your model Yankee farmer, but he got by because he had an apple orchard that produced the, the most gorgeous apples, the apples that everyone wanted. Every year they were the perfect apples. Well, late 1600s, this is the time when peddlers would come through to peddle their wares. A peddler came through Norwich, headed northwest, and then stopped his travels because his body was discovered in the orchard of Micah Rood one day with his head split open and his sack ransacked. All the people in the area suspected it was Micah Rood's doing, but there was never anyone to witness the crime and there was ne never any evidence that it attached him directly. Later that year, however, when the apples came in, those gorgeous apples that everyone wanted, when folks cut into them, inside every single apple was a spot of blood, <laughs> a red mark, a red discoloration that was a silent witness to a crime and likely a curse by a dying man upon the murderer. Micah Rood died impoverished and a broken man not long thereafter, but the trees in his orchard lived on for generations with that strange fruit of the bloody apples. In fact, some say the tree stood until the 1938 hurricane that did so much damage to Connecticut. These stories then that, <laughs> that start with, uh, with uh, perhaps an event that it actually occurred, they seem to change as the years go by. People em embellish them, build on the original events. Why does that happen? I mean, soon we've got a story that's maybe quite dissimilar from the original. That's absolutely true. And, and what we have in the case of Micah Rood, that's one version of hundreds of versions. Mm. Um, there, were, there were literary versions. There was a version published in Harper's that told a completely different tale. The only thing you need for that tale is Micah Rood, a dead peddler, and some bloody apples. And I can tell you there's <laughs> numerous variants, hundreds. That was the most popular tale, folk tale, in Connecticut in the 1800s into the 1900s, and one that, that left Connecticut and was very popular throughout the nation. Uh, newspapers printed it all the time around this time of the year because people delighted it. What's happening, of course, and the beauty of folklore is if I can say it this way, we tell these stories because we can tell these stories, right? We're the storytelling species. We make sense of our world through the stories that we tell. Our stories convey our anxieties and our hopes, our values and our advice. But the beauty of, of folklore, the beauty of a folk narrative like the Michael Root story is that no one owns it. Unlike, say, formal literature, no one owns it. Everyone can adopt it and adapt it and tell it the way they want to tell it. And so folklore and especially folk narratives and legends like these appeal to the very heart of our species as the storytelling species. Everyone can tell this and everyone can tell it the way they want about the social circumstances that reflect the different times, the different anxieties of the times, the different experiences of, of the times. And if I could add one more thing to that, there might, and I underscore the might, there might be some evidence of an actual crime at the basis of this. Ah. It's, a, it's a little gruesome, but there really was a Micah Rood. He lived from 1653 and died in 1728. And indeed, he lived in the area that's now Franklin. His father, Thomas Rood, was one of the early founders of the area and, and perhaps of Norwich itself. But in 1672, Thomas Rood 
had the distinction of being the only man executed in what would be the United States for incest with his daughter, Sarah, and Micah's sister. The Union did indeed produce a child, George. He died in Lisbon in 1744. And so unfortunately, in Micah Rood's actual family, there is a horrific crime and a horrific memory that likely lingered in the community, certainly for generations and generations. It doesn't absolutely inspire the story. It doesn't explain why the story happened, but it certainly can be passed on and, as you said earlier, Tom, evolve and evolve under different circumstances. When people get some distance from it, they can tell a, an eerie tale because it doesn't have the same effect as if you, you know, were to tell it at the right moment. This is the beauty of studying folklore, even when it's about gruesome or scary things, is it shows, again, the ingenuity of, of the human imagination as we tell our stories. The story of Micah Rood, the story of the moodist noises that we talked about before, they date back hundreds, hundreds of years. Now, there are some new stories, too. I guess you can call them new folklore uh, that yeah. uh, that are created. Uh, for instance, I understand there's a story about the melon heads. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and your teenage listenership is going <laughs> to love this. <laughs> yeah, the melon heads are a wonderful uh, you know, new folklore. Um, they they purportedly are small beings, often children, with giant heads lurking out in the woods, kind of where you are in Connecticut, <laughs> in the <laughs> eastern part of Fairfield County, the western part of New Haven. I mean, the original triangle was Trumbull and Shelton and Milford, but now it's expanded. And they're these beings who work out in the woods, uh, often at uh, on roads that are given the in the everyday parlance called Dracula Drive. Um, there's no real tale about them. They're beings of often malintent. The tales are often told that they're escaped from an asylum or that they were experiments or that they were inbreds or that they were subject to witchcraft. The point isn't to give them a full story. What the beauty of this is, is they become a canvas for what we folklorists call legend tripping, places where Often young people can go to test their mettle and to scare each other and to have the pleasure of a good, <laughs> of a good, you know, fright. And so for generations, teenagers have been telling these tales and continue to do so today. Do these stories play uh, some sort of a special role in our culture? I think so. They are a way for us to re-enchant the world on one level. The power of the uncanny is it makes the familiar strange and it makes the strange familiar that challenges what we know about the world. But they also are a way for us to project our anxieties and often anxieties about the others. Take the melon heads. What's also happening in the 1960s, 1970s is Connecticut is changing considerably. There are tensions between the rural and the urban, and we see that reflected in the rise of melon head tales. There's other stories, other beings. The raggies in northwest Connecticut often have terrible stories told about them because they were people who lived, you know, in the in the more rural areas. So we do see class tensions arise. We see fears about the others. There are, of course, many, many old stories, ancient stories of beings in the woods. The melon heads themselves might be responding to fears that we saw about aliens earlier. But Connecticut 
So there were lots of UFO sightings in the 1950s to the 1970s during the Cold War. During the 1970s, we started to see uh, creatures like the Dover Demon up in Dover, Massachusetts, and that lit the popular culture. The Bridgeport Post and the Hartford Current covered these these rumors of these strange melon head shaped beings, small being up in Massachusetts, and inspired other people to tell the tale. But something else was going on. This was a period of recombinant DNA beginning those experiments. And you saw in the 70s lots of people projecting anxieties about the new world and about a new science onto the creation of beings that might be out there, right? The, the miscreations if we don't pay attention to what we're doing and if we play God. Stephen, do you foresee maybe tall tales emanating from experiences people are having right now with, with COVID-19? There's no doubt. I mean, it's one. Of, I, I am not a man of certitude, but this is one that I would say there's absolutely no doubt. Um, there are folklorists who've done some great work studying previous pandemics, and we've seen that happen time and time again. Here in Connecticut, for example, the stories of vampires arose in large cases because of tuberculosis breaking out in the 1800s. And when we go back and look at the history of folklore and folk narratives, time and time again, people work through the horror of plagues, the anxiety of plagues, the, the not knowing what will happen through the, that type of projection into tales of monstrous beings or of, of visitations or sometimes even of miraculous cures. And so we're already seeing conspiracy theories as we would think of them arise. And that's a kind of new form, to, that's a new form of folklore. So I have no doubt 20, 30, 40 years from now, right, the melon heads <laughs> will <laughs> have had something to do with COVID or a new being will have arisen out of that. So lots of things can be projected through these tales. And again, that's why I smile ear to ear when I have the pleasure of working through them. <laughs> More to think about on this uh, Halloween weekend. Stephen, thank you so much for your time and, uh, and uh, your analysis of tall tales. We appreciate it. It is, it is my absolute pleasure, Tom. Happy Halloween. Thank you. Same to you. Stephen Jancarella is a professor of folklore studies at the University of Massachusetts and the resident folklorist at the Connecticut River Museum. And our tales have come to an end for this Halloween edition of The Full Story, produced by Fatou Sangare and senior producer Ann Lopez. I'm Tom Couser. Thanks for listening.